Section 18 of The Golden Bough, Part 1. The Magic Art and the Evolution of Kings, Volume 2, by Sir James George Fraser. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 21. Dianus and Diana. Recapitulation. In this chapter, I propose to recapitulate the conclusions to which the inquiry has thus far led us, and drawing together the scattered rays of light, to turn them on the dark figure of the priest of Nimai. Rise of sacred kings who are supposed to be endowed with magical divine powers. We have found that, at an early stage of society, men, ignorant of the sacred processes of nature, and of the narrow limits within which it is our power to control and direct them, have calmly arrogated to themselves functions, which in the present state of knowledge we should deem superhuman or divine. The illusion has been fostered and maintained by the same causes which begot it, namely, the marvellous order and uniformity with which nature conducts her operations, the wheels of her great machine revolving in a smoothness and precision which enable the patient observer to anticipate in general the season, if not the very hour when they will bring round the fulfilment of his hopes or the accomplishment of his fears. The regularly recurring events of this great cycle, or rather series of cycles, soon stamp themselves even on the dull mind of the savage. He foresees them, and foreseeing them mistakes the desired recurrence for an effect of his own will, and the dreaded recurrence for an effect of the will of his enemies. Thus the springs which set the vast machine in motion, though they lie far beyond our ken, shrouded in a mystery which we can never hope to penetrate, appear to ignorant man to lie within his reach. He fancies he can touch them, and so work by magic art, all manner of good to himself and evil to his foes. Transition from Magic to Religion In time, the fallacy of this belief becomes apparent to him. He discovers that there are things he cannot do, pleasures which he is unable of himself to procure, pains which even the most potent magician is powerless to avoid. The unattainable good, the inevitable ill, and now ascribed by him to the action of invisible powers, whose favour is joy and life, whose anger is misery and death. Thus magic tends to be displaced by religion, and the sorcerer by the priest. At this stage of thought, the ultimate cause of things are conceived to be personal beings, many in number and often discordant in character, who partake of the nature and even of the frailty of man, though their might is greater than his, and their life far exceeds the span of his infernal existence. Their sharply marked individualities, their clear-cut outlines, have not yet begun, under the powerful solvent of philosophy, to melt the coalesce into that single unknown substratum of phenomena, which, according to the qualities with which our imagination invests it, goes by one or other of the highest-sounding names with the wit of man has devised to hide his ignorance. Incarnate Human Deities Accordingly, so long as men look on their gods as beings akin to themselves, not raised to an unapproachable height above them, they believe it to be possible for those of their own number who surpass their fellows to obtain to the divine rank after death or even in life. Incarnate human deities of this latter sort may be said to hold midway between the age of magic and the age of religion. If they bear the names and display the pomp of deities, the powers which they are supposed to weld are commonly those of their predecessor, the magician, 
Like him, they are expected to guard their people against hostile enchantments, to heal them in sickness, to bless them with offspring, and to provide them with an abundant supply of food by regulating the weather and performing the other ceremonies which are deemed necessary to ensure the fertility of the earth and the multiplication of animals. Men who are credited with power so lofty and far-reaching naturally hold the highest place in the land, and while the rift between the spiritual and the temporal spheres has not yet widened too far, they are supreme in civil as well as religious matters. In a word, they are kings as well as gods. Thus the divinity which hedges a king has its roots deep down in human history, and long ages pass before these are sapped by a profounder view of nature and man. The king of the wood and Nemi seems to have been one of these divine kings, and to have mated with the divine queen of the wood, Dinah. In the classical period of Greek and Latin antiquity, the reign of kings was, for the most part, a thing of the past. Yet the stories of their lineage, titles, and pretensions suffice to prove that they too claim to rule by divine right and to exercise superhuman powers. Hence, we may, without undue temerity, assume that the king of the wood and Nemi, though short in latter times of his glory and fallen on evil days, represented a long line of sacred kings who had once received not only the homage but the adoration of their subjects in return for the manifold blessings which they were supposed to dispense. What little we know of the functions of Diana and the Arician Grove seems to prove that she was here conceived as a goddess of fertility, and particularly as a divinity of childbirth. It is reasonable, therefore, to suppose that in the discharge of these important duties she was assisted by her priest, the two figuring as king and queen of the wood in a solemn marriage, which was intended to make the earth gay with the blossoms of spring and the fruits of autumn, and to gladden the hearts of men and women with healthful offspring. Furbius whom the king of a wood represented was probably a form of Jupiter regarded as the god of the green wood, and especially of the oak. When the priests of Nemi posed not merely as a king, but as a god of the grove, we have still to ask, what deity in particular did he personate? The answer of antiquity is that he represented Verbius, the consort or lover of Diana, but this does not help us much, for of Verbius we know little more than the name. A clue to the mystery is perhaps supplied by the vestal fire which burned in the grove. For the perpetual holy fires of the Aryans in Europe appear to have been commonly kindled and fed with oak wood. And we have seen that in Rome itself, not many miles from Nemi, the fuel of the vestal fire consisted of oaken sticks or logs, which in early days the holy maidens doubtless gathered or cut in the coppices of oak that once covered the seven hills. But the ritual of the various Latin towns seems to have been marked by great uniformity, hence it is reasonable to conclude that wherever in Latium a vestal fire was maintained, it was fed, as at Rome, with wood of the sacred oak. If this was so at Nemi, it becomes probable that the hallowed grove there consisted of a natural oak wood, and that therefore the tree which the king of the wood had to guard at the peril of his life was itself an oak. Indeed, it was an evergreen oak according to Virgil, that Aeneas plucked the golden bale. Now the oak was the sacred tree of Jupiter, the supreme god of the Latins. Hence it follows that the king of the wood, whose life was bound up in a fashion with an oak, personated no less a deity than Jupiter himself. At least the evidence, slight as it is, seems to point to this conclusion. The old Alban dynasty of the Sylvie, or woods, with their crown of oak leaves, 
apparently aped the style and emulated the powers of Latian Jupiter, who dwelt on the top of the Alban Mount. It is not impossible that the king of the wood, who guarded the sacred oak a little lower down the mountain, was the lawful successor and representative of this ancient line of the Sylvie or woods. At all events, if I am right in supposing that he passed for a human Jupiter, it would appear that Verbius, with whom legend identified him, was nothing but a local form of Jupiter, considered perhaps in his original aspect as a god of the Greenwood. Diana and the Oak The hypothesis that in later times, at all events, the king of the wood played the part of the oak god Jupiter is confirmed by an examination of his divine partner Diana. Diana, the divine partner of the king of the wood and Nemi, seems to have been especially associated with the oak. For two distinct lines of argument converge to show that if Diana was a queen of the woods in general, she was a Nemi, a goddess of the oak in particular. In the first place, she bore the title of Esther, and as such presided over perpetual fire, which we have seen reason to believe was fed with oak wood. But a goddess of fire is not far removed from a goddess of the fuel which burns in the fire. Primrith thought perhaps draws no sharp line of distinction between the blaze and the wood that blazes. In the second place, the nymph Egeria and Nemi appears to have been merely a former Diana, and Egeria is definitely said to have been a dryad, a nymph of the oak. Elsewhere in Italy, the goddess had her home on oak-clad mountains. Thus Mount Algidas, a spur of the Alban hills, was covered in antiquity with dark forests of oak, both the evergreen and the deciduous sort. In winter, the snow lay long on these cold hills, and the gloomy oak woods were believed to be a favourite haunt of Diana, as they have been of brigands in modern times. Again, Mount Defata, the long abrupt ridge of the Apennines, which looks down on the Campanian plain behind Capua, was wooded of old with evergreen oaks, among which Diana had a temple. Eusola thanked the goddess for his victory over the Marians in the plain below, attesting his gratitude by inscriptions which were long afterwards to be seen in the temple. On the whole, then, we conclude that at Nemai, the king of the wood, personated the oak god Jupiter, and met it with the oak goddess Diana in the sacred grove. An echo of a mystic union has come down to us in the legend of the loves of Numa and Egeria, who, according to some, had their trusting place in these holy woods. In nature and in name, Dionys, Janus, and Diana seem to be only dialectically different forms of Jupiter and Juno. To this theory, it may naturally be objected that the divine consort of Jupiter was not Diana, but Juno, and that if Diana had a mate at all, he might be expected to bear the name not of Jupiter, but of Dionys or Janus, the latter of these forms being merely a corruption of the former. All this is true, but the objection may be parried by observing that the two pairs of deities, Jupiter and Juno, on the one side, and Dionys and Diana, or Janus and Jana, on the other side, are merely duplicates of each other, their names and their functions being in substance and origin identical. With regard to their names, all four of them come from the same Aryan root, Di, meaning bright which occurs in the names of the corresponding Greek deities, Zeus, and his old female consort, Dion. In regard to their functions, Juno and Diana were both goddesses of fecundity and childbirth, and both were sooner or later identified with the moon. As to the true nature and functions of Janus, the ancients themselves were puzzled, and where they hesitated, it is not for us confidently to decide. But the view mentioned by Varro, that Janus was a god of the sky, 
is supported not only by the etymological identity of his name with that of the sky god jupiter but also by the relation in which he appears to have stood on jupiter's two mates juno and juturna for the epithet juranian bestowed on janus points to a marriage union between the two deities and according to one account janus was a husband of the water nymph juturna who according to others was beloved by jupiter moreover janus like jove was regularly invoked and commonly spoken of under the title of father indeed he was identified with jupiter not merely by logic of a christian doctor but by the piety of a pagan worshipper who decided an offering to jupiter dionys a trace of his relation to the oak may be found in the oak woods of the Janiculum, the hill on the right bank of the tiber where janus is said to have reigned as a king in the remotest ages of italian history Zeus and Dione, Jupiter and Juno, Dionys, Janus, and Diana represent a single original pair of Arian deities, which through purely dialectical differences of nomenclature gradually diverged from each other and came to be regarded as separate pairs of deities. Thus, if I am right, the same ancient pair of deities was variously known among the Greek and Italian peoples as Zeus and Dione, Jupiter and Juno, or Dionys, Janus and Dina, Jenna. The names of the divinities been identical in substance, though varying in form with the dialect of the particular tribe which worshipped them. At first, when the peoples dwelt near each other, the difference between the deities would be hardly more than one of name. In other words, it would be almost purely dialectical. But the gradual dispersion of the tribes and their consequent isolation from each other would favour the growth of divergent modes of conceiving and worshipping the gods whom they had carried with them from their old homes, so that in time discrepancies of myth and ritual would tend to spring up and thereby to convert a nominal into a real distinction between the divinities. Accordingly, when the slow progress of culture, the long period of barbarism and separation was passing away, and the rising political power of a single strong community had begun to draw or hammer its weaker neighbours into a nation, the confluent peoples would throw their gods, like their dialects, into a common stock, and thus it might come about that the same ancient deities with their forefathers had worshipped together before the dispersion would now be so disguised by the accumulated effect of dialectical and religious divergencies that their original identity might fail to be recognised, and they would take their places side by side as independent divinities in the national pantheon. This explanation of Janus as equivalent to Jupiter is more probable than the view that Janus was originally nothing but the god of the door, Janus. For the door, Janua, seems rather to have been named after Janus than he after it. The duplication of deities, the result of the final fusion of kindred tribes who had long lived apart, would account for the appearance of Janus beside Jupiter, and Diana, or Janna, beside Juno, in the Roman religion. At least this appears to be a more probable theory than the opinion which has found favour with some modern scholars that Janus was originally nothing but the god of doors, that a deity of his dignity and importance, whom the Romans revered as a god of gods and the father of his people, should have started in life as a humble, though doubtless respectable doorkeeper, appears to me, I confess, very unlikely. So lofty an end hardly consorts with so lowly a beginning. It is more probable that the door, Janua got its name from Janus than that he got his name from it. This view is strengthened by the consideration of the word Jonah itself. The regular word for door is the same in all the languages of the Aryan family from India to Ireland. It is dur, 
in Sanskrit, Thura in Greek, Tur in German, Dur in English, Doras in Old Irish, and Forus in Latin. Yet besides this ordinary name for Dur, which the Latins share with all their Aryan brethren, they had also the name Janoa, to which there is no corresponding term in any Indo-European speech. The word has the appearance of being an adjective form derived from the noun Janus. I conjecture that it may have been customary to set up an image or symbol of Janus at the principal door of the house, in order to place the entrance under the protection of the great god. A door thus guarded might be known as a Janua Fortis, that is, a genuine door, and the phrase might in time be abridged into Janua, the noun forest being understood but not expressed. From this to the use of Janua, to designate a door in general, whether guarded by an image of Janus or not, would be an easy and natural transition. The double-headed figure of Janus may have originated in a custom of placing his image as guardian of doorways so as to face both ways, outwards and inwards, at the same time. If there is any truth in this conjecture, it may explain, very simply, the origin of the double-head of Janus, which has so long exercised the ingenuity of mythologists. When it has become customary to guard the entrance of houses and towns by an image of Janus, it might well be deemed necessary to make the sentinel god look both ways, before and behind, at the same time, in order that nothing should escape his vigilant eye. For the divine watchman always faced in one direction, it is easy to imagine what mischief might have been wrought with impunity behind his back. This explanation is confirmed by the double-headed idols which the bush negroes of Suriname set to guard the entrances of their villages. This explanation of the double-headed Janus at Rome is confirmed by the double-headed idol which the bush negroes in the interior of Suriname regularly set up as a guardian at the entrance of a village. The idol consists of a block of wood with a human face, rudely carved on each side. It stands under a gateway composed of two uprights and a crossbar. Beside the idol generally lies a white rag intended to keep off the devil, and sometimes there is also a stick which seems to represent a bludgeon or weapon of some sort. Further from the crossbar hangs a small log, which serves the useful purpose of knocking on the head any evil spirit who might attempt to pass through the gateway. Clearly this double-headed fetish at the gateway of the Negro villages in Suriname bears a close resemblance to the double-headed images of Janus, which, grasping a stick in one hand and a key in the other, stood sentinel at Roman gates and doorways. And we can hardly doubt that in both cases the heads facing two ways are to be similarly explained as expressive of the vigilance of the guardian god who kept his eye on spiritual foes behind and before and stood ready to bludgeon them on the spot. We may, therefore, dispense with the tedious and unsatisfactory explanations which the Willie Janus himself fogged off an anxious Roman inquirer. In the interior of Borneo, the Kenyas generally place before the main entrance of their houses the wooden image of Baliatap, that is, the spirit or god, Bali, of the roof, who protects the household from harm of all kinds. But it has not appeared that this divine watchman is provided with more than one face. Thus the king of the wood and Nemi seems to have personated the great Aryan god of the oak, Jupiter or Janus, and to have mated with the oak goddess Dana. To apply these conclusions to the priest of Nemi, we may suppose that, as the mate of Diana, he represented originally Dianus or Janus rather than Jupiter, but that the difference between these deities was 
of old merely superficial, going little deeper than the names, and leaving practically unaffected the essential functions of the god as the power of the sky, the thunder, and the oak. If my analysis of this great divinity is correct, the original element in this composite nature was the oak. It was fitting, therefore, that his human representative in Nemi should dwell, as we have seen reason to believe he did, in an oak grove. His title of King of the Wood clearly indicates the sylvan character of the deity whom he served, and since he could only be assailed by him who had plucked the bough of a certain tree in the grove, his own life might be said to be bound up with that of the sacred tree. Thus, he not only served, but embodied the great Aryan god of the oak, and as an oak god, he would mate with the oak goddesses, whether she went by the name of Egeria or Diana. Their union, however, consummated, would be deemed essential to the fertility of the earth and the fecundity of man and beast. Further, as the oak god had grown into a god of the sky, the thunder and the rain, so his human representative would be required, like many other divine kings, to cause the clouds together, the thunder to peal, and the rain to descend in due season, that the fields and orchards might bear fruit, and the pastures be covered with luxuriant herbage. The reputed professor of power so exalted must have been a very important personage, and the remains of buildings and of votive offerings which had been found on the site of the sanctuary combined with the testimony of classical writers to prove that at latter times it was one of the greatest and most popular shrines in Italy. Even in the old days, when the Champagne country around was still parcelled out among the petty tribes who composed the Latin League, the sacred grove is known to have been an object of their common reverence and care. And just as the kings of Cambodia used to send offerings to the mystic kings of fire and water, fire in the dim depth of the tropical forest, so we may well believe, from all sides of the broad Latin plain, the eyes and footsteps of Italian pilgrims turned to the quarter where, standing sharply out against the faint blue line of the Apennines, or the deeper blue of the distant sea, the Alban mountain rose before them, the home of the mysterious priest of Nimai, the king of the wood. There, among the green woods, and beside the still waters of the lonely hills, the ancient Aryan worship of the god of the oak, the thunder, and the dripping sky lingered in its early, almost druidical form. Long after a great political intellectual revolution and shift to the capital of Latin religion from the forest to the city, from Nemai to Rome. End of section 18 and end of the Golden Bell, part 1, The Magic Art of the Evolution of Kings, volume 2, by Sir James George Fraser. Narrated by Leon Harvey.